welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. This is uh, a quantum theory special, so this is going to be very, very exciting because this is always, uh, it is always a joy to see early attempts at brevity before that is thrown out of the window uh, when dealing with quantum theory. And uh, I will tell you a, a few quick, th- in fact, I'm going to recommend this, this book as well, uh, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, uh, which is a fantastic book by my friend John Higgs. And I've mentioned it many times before, and we've had him on Book Shambles. And the reason that, one of the reasons I love this book uh is it's it's basically about the the loss of center for for human beings that uh when when we finally enter in in the 20th century into a kind of probabilistic universe we've lost the final omphalos the final kind of central thing that we can grip onto and uh, how that affected art and politics and culture but he has this beautiful description of wave particle duality where he says it's basically like describing something as both a brick and a song and i think that's a such a lovely way of, of him starting in, in, in that book. So I just wanted to recommend it again. I recommend it a great deal because it's one of probably my favourite books and we are joined by people who have written some of my favourite books as well today. Uh, a couple of other things quickly which is uh, if you support us for our Patreon, thank you very much. That helps us make all of the shows that we're still making uh, during whatever kind of semblance of, of lockdown or not lockdown or whatever it is uh, that is is going on and uh, so we're still trying to make as much as possible. If you are able to support us for our Patreon, that's brilliant. If you're not able to but you have a little bit of spare cash we have a tip jar somewhere on uh, on the screen and you can uh leave uh, a a financial tip we don't need your your philosophical tips you can well i mean actually we can have those as well if you'd like to, to leave those that's fine and uh, if you have no money whatsoever or really you don't want to pay for it that's absolutely fine as well we want to make sure that as much as what we do is uh free to access so that's uh, a few things i also want to mention one other thing i've got uh oh also um the uh, Blue Dot and Cosmic Shambles interview that we did with Andrean, uh, Brian Cox and myself, that is now up on YouTube. That went live on the Blue Dot Festival yesterday at midday. And we had a lovely conversation about the Golden Record and uh, uh, about the work with, with with Carl Sagan about when they made Cosmos together and Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors and, and, and many other things as well. Um, so you can see that. Uh, what else have I been given in my notes? Oh, next week's Q&A is The Brain. That's great news because uh, if any 
if you've heard the recent Infinite Monkey Cage on the Brain, where we didn't even get to question one. Every t- it's fine if we do it sometimes with other creatures' brains, but the moment you get to the human brain, we just we we we, we got nowhere. But I'll tell you what, it was a very interesting journey. It's a bit like Mad Max Fury Road, I suppose. Really, we ended up where we started, but nevertheless, we saw some interesting things on the way. Um, and uh, also, there's a new uh, video out on the Stand Up Maths channel, Matt Parker Stand Up Maths channel, uh, collaboration with Matt Parker, Hugh Hunt, and uh, also Helen about ellipsoids and um so yes and if you can also subscribe to our channel that is uh, fantastic as well um i think i've mentioned pretty much everything um so that's fine and I'll, i will mention finally one thing which i really recommend highly and a lot of people i've spoken to didn't know about its existence but um there's a very it's not a, a happy documentary it is a documentary that may well uh make you frustrated and angry and uh, at times possibly very sad as well but i really recommend if you get a chance to watch the bbc3 documentary false hope uh about alternative cancer cures which looks uh, in particular at uh, a, a young guy called um sean walsh who was a young musician in uh, in merseyside and uh, it's a very very and also you can then go and listen to skeptics with a k um Michael Marshall and the other Merseyside skeptics, I think, do a really great job because their skepticism is so much rooted in humanity and their worry about humanity and their hopes. And you know, it's not it, to me. It's it's never been. As sometimes people seem to think you know it can be cynical or it can be smug or it can be uh, kind of uh, superior. Uh, their work and the episode they've just done about the false hopes uh, in alternative cancer cures is very very good. So. That is, uh, that's probably one of the longest uh, annotations that I've given to the introduction. So let's now meet everyone that we've got. We will start off with uh, every Sunday she is here, which beats me because one Sunday I didn't manage to make it. It is Helen Chersky. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now I'm going to get straight in there. Your show and tell in there. Your show and tell. So I, so I got a new bookcase and that meant I could get books that have been in boxes, out of boxes and put them in the bookcase. And that means I found some new books that I've been carrying around for years. And um, this book, uh, I remember my parents having when I was a kid and I obviously picked it up. It was published in 1970 uh, by this person, I.O. Evans. I looked to see what else they had written and they had written The Guide to Collecting Cigarette Cards. But apparently they're journalists. But what's interesting about it is that it's it goes through from the 1970 perspective. It goes through all the theories of the way the Earth is and the sort of development of ideas. And what's nice about it is that it's 50 years old. It's got some crackers in it. So my favourite is somewhere down here. I, I've no idea whether this is true. If anyone is a, a medievalist and knows this or knows about the Middle Ages. So there's on this page. Oh, I think I might just have broken the book <laughs> on this page here. There is down the bottom there. You won't be able to see it. But it says um, it talks about where people wondering where stones had come from in the Middle Ages. And it says a few stones are hollow with small pebbles inside them. How natural to assume that the inner stone is literally the birth, the offspring of the outer one and that the latter had, so as to speak, given birth. Um, how natural to deduce that some stones have a sex being either male or female and that stones can literally grow within the earth. And then he points out that things like kidney stones do <laughs> to operate like this so there's some lovely there's some lovely ideas in there and then the thing i like most of all is that literally just before they published it you know a couple of months before this must have gone to press the apollo missions got to the moon and so um so i just quite like this as a you know a reminder that in 50 years we did know quite a lot plate tectonics is in here evolution is in here although he accepts that no one really knows how it works um 
you know why it works but um it's just like you know the development of ideas it's just a bog standard book from 50 years ago and it's quite nice to see what they thought so that's my there were loads of those that's that was a good series as far as i remember they they as far as i remember they they and it's always fantastic illustrations very beautifully and then you had the tragedy there which is uh, of course publisher's idea perfect binding as it was called which was far from perfect and which is why very often you find an old book and you go i love this book but if i open it will all the pages fall out as the glue stops holding them together that is exactly that- what has happened to this book today that is, uh, yeah, that's always the danger. That's it. Will you keep it as a Schrodinger's book filled yeah. with possibility or do you dare open it and therefore kill the book? Um, someone who's, uh, I th- I, it's always a danger to say his most recent book because uh, not only is, is is one of our guests tremendously prolific and I really, his, his work is always enlightening and always fascinating and, and always approachable for people like me who are not scientists uh, and uh, beyond weird. Was that Philip your most Ball? recent book, or have I recent book, or have I missed? It wasn't my most recent book. I knew I, it. I, I'm looking for it now for the most recent as a bit of free advertising. I don't have it. My most recent book was How to Grow a Human, and it was um, talking. It was really it launched from this experiment that I took part in uh, several years ago, where a scientist at UCL, neuroscientist, grew me a mini brain. Um, and they grew it from a piece of my arm. They took a little bit of skin from my shoulder and cultured it into stem cells. And from the stem cells, they grew them into neurons and the neurons grew into a little tiny brain. It was about this big, about the size of a, a, a lentil. That's um, quite big. And it's great. I mean, you know, you can see it. Exactly. Really yeah, yeah. It's not bad. It's, it's kind of, you know, bird sized or something. Um, and uh, and I have wonderful. They had lovely uh, microscope images of the stained neurons joining together, and uh, it was extraordinary. And the book is all about. So this is nothing to do with quantum mechanics. That, but the book is all about that technology for reprogramming cells, um, including our own cells, so that we can reprogram them to become like the cells from which our embryos grew and then you can grow them into any tissue including a mini brain so that's the latest book see that worries me slightly because it, it reminds me of the bruce robinson richie grant movie how to get ahead in advertising in which someone does start to grow a head pretty much out of their neck and across their shoulder as well so i now no longer know if we're seeing the original no, philip we're seeing the original philip ball or whether that was actually consumed by uh, uh yeah. an, an avaricious brain that was created by you um you've got a show and tell as well I have, yeah. I grabbed one off my shelves, uh, uh, and, and it was. But I, I just happened to have this thing sitting nearby, and I hadn't thought about it for ages. This is you might just be able to see. It's a uh, force multiplier, the principle of Sato's force multiplier. When I worked as an editor at Nature, um, we would get the most fantastic uh, papers sent to us by people who weren't professional scientists and had just hit on an idea that explained the universe, or usually explained the universe, actually. In fact, we were talking just before we started about how this happens with quantum mechanics in particular, and I regularly now get sent people's alternative theories of quantum mechanics. Um, But I got very familiar with with this whole world of, uh, you know, alternative physics uh, through being an editor at Nature and having to deal with these papers. 
mostly they were just papers but just occasionally you'd get something fantastic like this come in the mail and so this was sent to me and i don't know what it does exactly it has moving parts and i'm not quite sure what they're meant to illustrate but it was clearly illustrating this guy's theory of uh, probably an alternative newtonian theory for how force works so i've kept it all these years because it's actually rather a lovely thing it's rather beautifully made and i have never really known how to work it you realise what's going to happen oh, now? That you're going to get loads of letters from people who have watched this going, oh, I know what the theory is, and then sending you 50-page documents with their it's theories all, on there. It's already happening, Helen. <laughs> Writing a book about quantum mechanics is an open, an open invitation to do that. And I've had to, I've tweeted to say, look, you know, by all means, send me your theories, but I will not comment on any of them. And in fact, the truth is, if you need me to comment and proclaim, you know, pronounce on whether your theory is any good, then probably you're not on the right track. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I'm already there. But Jim Al-Khalili is more. If you have a theory, send it to Jim. <laughs> Don't be me. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no. It'd be nice. Jim likes it. You know what, though? If you do have a theory, do the nice proper letters, because the fun ones are the ones where people actually bothered to write a nice letter and didn't just copy and paste the same email. So if you're going to have theories, I think present them nicely. Well, um, yeah, it's very interesting. That's true. That's true because generally speaking, I can recognise these emails because there's no kind of formalities or niceties. They just launch straight into their theory of of quarks, um, which is kind of you know a curious approach. So yeah, you're right, Helen. It's um you know a a, a nice little intro helps helps. Well, you've uh, you've all invited this to be it on your own heads, uh, and now we are uh, one of the. I, I've not been to that many uh, physics lectures, but uh, I went to her, as far as I remember, it's third year, I hope I'm right, the introductory third year lecture on general relativity. And it was really fascinating. It was, it was I, I can't, I think I was working on a, on a show at the time for Radio 4 about relativity. And uh, she was recently also on the Infinite Monkey Cage talking about uh, time with Carla Ravelli and, and Mark Gatiss. And uh, is a big Alan Moore fan as well, which later on we may well all link together in Jerusalem style. Uh, and, and that is fades out. Okay, hello, Faye. Hi, Robin. Hi, everyone. Now you have time, wasn't it? Because we we ended up feeling as if we had very little time to deal with the nature of time. I felt I'm I'm not sure. It, it's often interesting that bit where perhaps I don't know if you feel like this because it's something that everyone thinks they know what it is until they're questioned. It means that from the very beginning of the show, because you open that up, it becomes increasingly complex would you say that's fair yeah you have to define what the question is what what exactly are you uh, is on talking about and i found yeah it was it was a difficult show i agree i'm not sure we got really to yeah setting out exactly what it is that we wanted to debate or the different points of view we wanted to explore so yeah it was quite it was kind of tricky i mean the yeah. idea of setting out uh, maybe alternative perspectives is a useful one. So the one I like most for time is this dichotomy between being and becoming. So being being the block universe, all the events in the universe, past, present and future are equally real. They're just laid out once and for all versus the idea that time is a process that there is becoming, that the world comes into being in a, in a process, and that process is the passage of time. So, so those, to 
set those pit those against each other can be a useful a useful way to frame frame a discussion I thought so Anyway, but yeah, we'll see what people think, I suppose. Well, the uh, a very simple introduction, if anyone wants a simple introduction into the block universe, is merely to read Alan Moore's book, Jerusalem. That won't take much time, I promise no. you. It is uh, it is merely as long as the Old Testament. And, he, and, and it was his kind of when he, I, I don't know where he first read it, when he was reading an article about the block universe, that played a major part mm. uh, in uh, him then writing this incredible book uh, about Northampton and about history and about physics and so many different things. Uh, do you have a uh, a show and tell for us, Faith? I do. It's also a book. So here it is. Ooh. Oh, right in front oh, of your face. Oh, you go totally invisible. <laughs> oh, this is this is great. This is like watching the 1970s David McCallum film, now. The Invisible Man. Okay, I'll just have to describe it to you. So, it's... oh no, we can see it now. We can just see it. Keep it there. Yeah, the nature of space and <laughs> the nature of space. The universe is playing tricks on us. <laughs> yeah, by Stephen. Hawking and Roger Penrose. So it's the record of a, an amazing event, intellectual event, um, that happened in Cambridge in 1994. So it was a series of lectures, alternating lectures by Stephen and by Roger, um, setting out their views on fund that both their contributions to fundamental physics and relativity and quantum gravity and their views about the directions, the most interesting and fruitful directions that should be pursued. And there was a, a debate at the end between them, um, toing and froing. And it was, I have to say, totally thrilling. I mean, as a young, I was a young scientist then at the beginning of my career, and I just felt, this is a real, this is what I want to be involved in, this kind of thing. I want to think about these sorts of things. I want to contribute to this kind of, um, this kind of, activity and this quest to understand the world at its most fundamental level and so yes it was a um, it brings back great memories for me but I want to quote to you from from the beginning of the debate so so this is chapter seven and it's Stephen so he says these lectures have shown very clearly the difference between Roger and me he's a Platonist and I'm a positivist He's worried that Schrodinger's cat is in a quantum state where it is half alive and half dead. He feels that can't correspond to reality, but that doesn't bother me. I don't demand that a theory correspond to reality because I don't know what it is. Reality is not a quality you can test with litmus paper. All I'm concerned with is that the theory should predict the results of measurements. Quantum theory does this very successfully. So, it, yeah, and at the time, I remember, so I've gone through a you know process of development and deepening of my own thoughts and understanding on quantum theory, but at that, at that time, I sided very much with Roger and against um, Stephen in, that, in their debate on, the nat on quantum mechanics. And I felt that very strongly with, I would never say I was a Platonist, but certainly with Roger, that, that physics should describe reality. And I think, yeah, and I wasn't satisfied with with Stephen's view but now I feel I'm very, probably I know what Stephen means now I think I have a deeper understanding of what he what he means he was being deliberately provocative which was definitely a style of his um but the yeah the I, I I'm now halfway in between them so yeah that's 
This, this is, is yeah. yeah be, bit, now we don't know which way you're going to go. Now this is yeah. So this is there's a <laughs> tremendous bit of. Do you return to where you came? Do you go? The Platonist thing is interesting. I was talking with Natalie Haynes the other day, and she said that uh, the classicist Edith Hall said that the reason that uh, Plato was um, disappointed by the world as it was and hoped that there were perfect examples of those was because he was very very short sighted, and so he saw <laughs> the world entirely blurred. Whereas Aristotle had very good sight, so he was seeing things, and he went, "This is." And I think that's a very interesting and and. And Natalie says that Edith Hall gives a very good argument uh, on that. And uh, so if he'd just become a painter like Turner, it would have been fine. Um, So many questions. We're not going to get through them all. So let's start off with uh, Ed Morris's son has a question. He would just like to know, where does the universe stop? Now, I think this is a very interesting thing. People, it's very hard to imagine that something is ultimately not held within something else, that there's not some wall that you can then go further into another world. So who would like to... Helen, shall I start with you? Um, it's a tricky one, this, that, that well, idea of... Whether you mean in space or in time, and they're sort of linked ultimately, but we think of things stopping either as you carry on in time and then it stops tomorrow, or that you get to the edge and then it stops like a, like a coastline, I guess. Um, so I... There's obviously a lot of debate about this. And actually, it's really interesting because I think it comes back to what Faye was saying, which is that you can have theories that work very well for prediction, but they may not mean anything, but they work. Or you can have a mechanistic understanding of this is what's actually happening. And um, my understanding of this one is that the universe in time, it seems it will keep going. People have seems to have decided it's expanding and it's going to keep expanding. Um, and we don't know what that means. And in that case, perhaps when it stops is when everything's just run down you know entropy has reached its maximum extent and sure the universe is there but all functional things within it have come to a stop which is kind of an unsatisfying answer because it's a bit of a zombie state for a universe to be in but perhaps that's what's waiting for us and and it's maybe cleaner for the human mind to go ah there's a stop like like the restaurants at the end of the universe you know in in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where they know and there's a big crunch and then it all stops and everyone knows when the stop is so it, it might i'm not an expert on the latest you know where these theories have gone but it seems to me that the problem with this answer is that People have probably said it a lot, but because it's not a satisfying answer to a human, people find it hard to take in. So they keep asking the question. But the other two have probably got far more sophisticated ideas about this. Well, I, I wonder because there are places in the universe, yeah. there are places in the universe where it, where time does stop, and that's at the singularity inside a black hole. So at, at least our physics stops there. So our understanding of the physics stops at the singularity of a black inside a black hole and they and th- at that time it's as if a mini a mini crunch takes place so the big crunch is the sort of the time reverse of the big bang so it's where everything becomes very compressed and very um very hot and very dense so that happens inside the black hole and there's a a, a localized um collapse to a singularity inside a black hole and our physics stops there and we don't know what happens if if anything happens after that but interestingly in some of the work that I do it suggests that even at the singularity of a black hole or a big crunch of the whole universe that the universe will continue afterwards there will be events that occur um, um, after that, after that crunch, so, and that time will never 
end in that sense. The universe will will just will will carry on. But we don't know. That's speculative science. That's, that's the realm of quantum gravity. Phil, I'm going to move on because we've got so many questions. This is from Penny, and Penny would like to know: Do you really believe in parallel universes where there are infinite versions of yourself? believe in that uh, but but it's not a i mean at the moment all we can say you know it is just a question of belief there are people who uh support this is the the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics which um supposes that ev in every quantum event that could possibly have several outcomes all of those outcomes are realized um but that they are essentially realized in 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 separate universes so all the time with every essentially with every interaction between quantum particles um universes are being spawned are being split off um and you know th that idea suggests that there must also then be almost an infinite number perhaps an infinite number of universes in which there are uh, versions of ourselves uh, going about our lives gradually sort of diverging from the from the splitting point and that this is happening constantly um, and there are people who suggest, crazy though it sounds, the, the rationale for this is, uh, it kind of makes sense, because the, the truth is that within quantum mechanics, there is no prescription for um, uh, explaining how it comes to be that um, things that are continually evolving like waves in quantum theory suddenly click into this very concrete um, uh, this or that when we measure them. There is no prescription for that in quantum theory. We have to sort of clumsily put it in by hand. And uh, the people who support the many worlds interpretation say, well, why do that rather than just assuming that that doesn't happen, that actually what you, you don't suddenly get a sort of disappearance of possible outcomes from an observation. They, do, they, they are realized, but they're just realized in other universes that split at that point of observation or at that point of interaction. So, um, you know, this makes uh, a lot of sense in terms of the, the mathematics, because in some ways it, it, it looks simpler. Um, but there are there are various problems with this. One is to do with the technical sort of definition of how you think of, of how probability appears at all in quantum mechanics, um, because essentially the many worlds interpretation is saying that everything that could happen does happen. Um, and so, you know, with 100 percent probability that all outcomes will happen, that you, you have this with 100 percent probability and that with 100 percent probability. And that doesn't work with probability theory. So, you know, there, there are problems there. My um, worry about it is that, um, you know, often the people who push this view, it's a view, incidentally, that was proposed in the 1950s uh, um, uh, by a chap called Everett. And uh, it's often called the Everettian view rather than the many worlds. Many worlds is kind of often seen as a kind of a vulgarization of that idea. Um, they kind of, I think, quite casually accept the idea that, oh, there are just other world, other versions of us that split off. When it seems to me you take if you take that idea seriously, um, it becomes it, it becomes impossible even to speak about it. Um, what it really means is not that there are many versions of you going about uh, their, their different lives. If you really think about what this implies, it means that there is no you. There is no logical, there is no consistent way that you can talk about a self, an, a, an individual person. 
And often the response to that is, well, why should there be? You know, what? who are we to say how physics is, is, is meant to pan out? Um, you just have to go with it. You just have to accept that. But it seems to me that that um, makes that interpretation distinct from every single other theory that we have in science, which in the end assumes that there's an us uh, that is here seeing these things and measuring these things. And so it, it, it feels to me as though one of the problems with the many worlds is that but really going with this idea that there are, you know, uh, versions of ourselves splitting off all the time, um, that this leads in the end to an incoherence. We can't even then use language to talk about uh, our own experience of the world. Right. And uh, if people would like to know more about that, Beyond Weird is, uh, Weird available. is uh, available on online box, bookstores, etc. Um, I'm going to move straight on to another one. Sorry, I'm, I know I'm rattling through today, but uh, we've got the reviews in for The Infinite Monkey Cage. You were on Faye. And uh, here's one from uh, Gilbert. Gilbert would like to know, is time a concept, a measurement or an actual physical thing? I listened to The Monkey Cage on time and I think I'm now more confused. confused. <laughs> so... What again? We're, we're, we're back to that starting point, I suppose. Yeah, which it's is a physical process. It's it's the coming into being of of it's events happening, and those events at the, their most basic level are the yeah the becoming the coming into being of the basic fundamental units of reality, which I I refer to as space time atoms. So it's real. It's the physical. It's the most real thing in the <laughs> of all. It's it's a physical process of becoming. Yeah. Would it be easier if you think at an earlier stage of education, people were introduced that space and time were connected, rather than I think that's the thing is people very often it's in adulthood that you suddenly come across this idea if you come across it at all that they're not too so you you can't go this time there and that just keeps ticking whatever and the space there and that does that thing that space time that if we if we learnt about even if just in a very very simple way the quite an early part of the educational process it wouldn't come as such a shock uh about the the, the interconnected nature of it it's interesting that there are always struggles over pedagogy. What what's the best way to teach? You know what, uh, as, given what children and then young people are capable of 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 understanding at different stages of their development. So I think uh, I don't know what the best way to teach is, but I think young children have a much better idea about time than the the. A much more scientifically accurate view of time than the one that they acquire through having Newtonian concepts drummed into them for you know for the whole their whole school education. So the so what relativity teaches is is that really there's no notion of space as a as a global entity. So that there's no notion, it teaches that there's no notion of simultaneity, global simultaneity. There's no notion of of now here being simultaneous with now over in some distant part of the universe. And that's something that you, you have to learn. You, 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 that's not a natural, you know, it's not an intuitive concept because you don't have experience of the universe far away over there. You only have the experience of, of local things. So... That has to be taught and learned. Um, and then after you've 
been taught and learned all those Newtonian concepts of there being such a thing as three-dimensional space, you have to unlearn them when you when you come across relativity. So I, I don't know. But, of course, Newtonian physics is fantastically useful. And, one yeah, so... I have heard an idea that this may well happen at some point in the future. It's a really interesting ethical thing where we have now graphic simulations of things that an adult brain can't encompass. But there has I have heard suggestions that if you perhaps gave those graphic simulations of a four dimensional universe to a young child, that their their brains would kind of adapt to, to see them in a way that we can't. And I think it's really interesting because obviously human children's brains do that all the time. They see things the generation before didn't see and they take them as for granted. And I certainly do that. You know, when I, I was given um, sort of uh, a brief history of time, for example, when I was 10 or 11. And so I completely grew up with it, even though I clearly didn't understand all the nuances when I was 10. I, I just grew up with it. And so I, there's a really interesting idea about if we get better graphics of what some of these things mean and you show them to, to kids and you, they sort of, you know, build the brain structures, perhaps, that let them understand it in a way that we can't because we grew up in the, you know, this sort of Newtonian world only. Um, but obviously the ethical problems come along with that. <laughs> There's a discussion uh, about, I mean, this is true of quantum mechanics as well, that, well there are, that there are things within quantum mechanics that are just very, very hard for us to intuit. But some people are hoping that as quantum computers become more widespread and, you know, already there are quantum computers that schools can use online, can sort of register to use. And the hope is that, you know, if, if, if uh, children start doing this and it's not, it's no more difficult than regular computing to actually learn how to program it and run something simple. If they start doing this with real quantum computers, that maybe they will develop the kind of intuition that, uh, you, you know, you just get used to the idea of things like superpositions, which look as though they are things that are, you know, more than one thing at the same time. And this seems so counterintuitive to us. But if you grow up, you know, knowing that, that, that such things can exist, then again, you know, maybe you, you just develop that, that intuition just develops, you know, as it does for, uh, for anything else that you learn. Um, Helen, we've got a, uh, a, question, got a, a question from uh, Bob Windmill, uh, who watched your event with the uh, Royal Academy of Engineering this week and uh, wanted your thoughts on this. To what extent is or perhaps rather should the environmental impact of mining and transporting the materials needed for green technologies and manufacturing and transporting products be taken into account when assessing the benefits of the future green schemes discussed? Well, of course it is, and it, of course it should be, and it already is. Fully, so uh, properly, properly done environmental uh, audits absolutely take into account full life cycle analysis. Now, you can you can get most of it right. There's obviously some slippery concepts in there because um, you're potentially predicting. Uh, either predicting things that might happen a long way in the future or you're looking at processes in the past where you can't track everything because there weren't records but there's absolutely no question that a proper environmental audit includes recycling everything i mean as we have talked about before i think the whole world is made of poo fundamentally that's the way the, that's the way earth works things go round and round you're only ever made from the waste of the previous thing that was there so it only ever makes sense to do these analyses on a cyclic basis but obviously in a world that is changing very quickly it can be a tricky thing to do but it and it's already being done absolutely any good environmental audit it's absolutely already being done 
Right. Well, that's uh, a little bit of a right, break. Well, that's from, uh, a little bit of a break from uh, Quantum. But don't worry, we're back there now. Uh, this is from AEJ65. Uh, like to know, there's a lot of pseudoscientific woo that misuses the word quantum as an adjective. Uh, Deepak Chopra left off, uh, leapt off the edge into that chasm of spiritual nonsense years ago. But I just watched uh, a discussion between Deepak Chopra and Richard Dawkins. And you know, when every now and again you're reminded why Richard Dawkins is so grumpy so much of the time, I had quite forgotten uh, what why he puts himself up for these. I have no idea there will be no happiness found whatsoever um but uh what aej65 would like to know do, do any great woo free writers get close to that precipice while anchoring themselves in the realm of science so this is quite interesting because i know you've talked about this before phil as well which is that uneasy slightly blurred area and i suppose to some extent maybe when we're talking about parallel worlds perhaps is there a point there where you go this is just edging towards the precipice of woo but the equations just allow that to go that far well the i mean i think as far as many worlds are concerned the equations are silent to my mind on whether many worlds exists or not the, the you know the the everettians insist that the the other worlds are already in the equations but they're not i've looked for them you can look mm -hmm. as hard as you like and you won't find them there um, so to my mind, you know, it does encourage and, and I mean, you know, you see it all the time that if anything, I mean, Debs, for example, the recent TV program, you know, if, if any TV programs or films are made about quantum mechanics, you can be fairly sure that many worlds will surface in that form of, oh, we might have other lives that we live. So, you know, even though the that interpretation itself has, I think, a, a, a firm foundation, whether you agree with it or not it very easily lends itself and in fact that's why it's so popular because it lends itself to to that side of things but i think that you know the truth is that within quantum mechanics there are uh, phenomena that happen that really do seem you know they seem to invite this because they are so strange and entanglement is probably the one that you know does that a lot as well so entanglement uh, is is something that can happen and that in fact inevitably happens whenever two quantum particles interact with one another and then go off somewhere. They um, they they then for, form an entangled state so that in some sense doing something to one particle seems to have an instant effect on the other particle no matter how far away it is in space and time. Um, and so this, you know, it, it really sounds like there's some kind of weird instantaneous telepathy between these particles. And within quantum mechanics, the way uh, that's often sort of uh, talked about is not that there is some some weird transmission of that effect from one particle to the other. In fact, it can't be that because that would have to go faster than light to explain what we see. And we know that things can't do that. Um, it's that once they have interacted, you have to, as far as quantum mechanics is concerned, in some sense, they are then a single entity. Even though they, you know, they might then separate in space, they are still a single quantum entity. And so, you know, you can't any longer think, well, I'm going to look at this particle and expect not to have some effect on the other part of, of this entity. But it seems to subvert all our, um, our everyday notions of how space works and it seems to undermine the whole notion that there is you know space separating them that has to be traversed if one has to affect the other so this is such a peculiar effect even though it's in entirely well uh, documented and and uh, proved experimentally 
that you know it's it's very understandable how uh how these ideas become used to explain things like um telepathy because you know it really there's no getting away from it it really does look like that even though scientifically there is absolutely no reason to think that that's really what's going on um because that is is, yeah the the telepathy that, that seems to be the danger of uh some of the ideas which get into the public sphere as you said which is that because someone like me hasn't been involved for two decades doing the working out i've gone straight from a world in which things uh cannot at that distance if i suddenly move one object here that's that immediately my brain just goes and therefore magic and it becomes this kind of wizardy strange magic world because i've not had to do i've done none of the work in between and that I can see, I guess you said, that's why it becomes so bamboozling and how we then do see some really, you know, sometimes some quite, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, some of these things are sometimes used in quite a dangerous way as well. You know, pseudoscience will sometimes pick up terminology, take that one or two sentences and say, and therefore my potion works. My, thing, my view is that my- we're still in the middle of the development of quantum theory. It's a, it's a, re- it was a revolution, but it's a rev- an unfinished revolution revolution we haven't yet come to an understanding of what is really going on in a quantum system what what is the picture that we should have of a quantum reality that's my view i don't think it's it's not settled and i think there's an avenue of development which has been always been there it's been there since the very beginning which hasn't been fully explored which gives us a different gives us an alternative to this many worlds or not many worlds dichotomy which is you can get into a bit of a rut with that Um, and that alternative perspective is called the and it's something which is closely associated with Richard Feynman so it's often called the Feynman path integral and it's an alternative um, framework for the theory in which you never have to talk about what gets people hung up, which is this quantum state, which is in this superposition of, 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 for a cat, for example, being alive and being dead. So if you take a, a path integral perspective on quantum theory, there are no states. There's no, there's no notion of there being a state, of a quantum state of the system at, an, at a moment of time that evolves in time. And that's actually a good thing to, ha- to not have, because to have a state that depends on time and evolves in time, that requires you to have this notion of a global now for there to be a, a T, a time T, that, the, that this state can depend on and change with. So because in relativity, there is no such thing. So in the path integral, the concepts that, the, that Feynman based the, his path integral formulation on are much more relativistic. They are events events that take place in space and time and histories so whole histories of the, of the of the system and in that from that perspective you never need to worry about there being a state which is in a superposition of dead and alive you only ever talk about events and those events either happen or they don't happen and i'm absolutely with philip on this i don't think that many worlds are a fruitful or useful or even comprehensible way to to think about the universe um, and I don't think quantum mechanics inevitably leads there and I think in particular that the path integral gives us an alternative way uh, it, it, it's just a you can 
cut the Gordian knot, you can sidestep that that question and think in time in terms entirely of events. And they are in the in our universe, they either happen definitely or they don't happen definitely. So that's yeah. But I'm surprised that there's all this kerfuffle and confusion and um, uh, because I think that's the state of the science is 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 like that. I don't think there's it's not you know it's not settled. Yeah. Faye, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm not supposed to be asking questions, it's supposed to be audience, about this, this question of where, how much quantum mechanics is held back by the human's desperate need to understand a mechanism. It's this attached to that which pulls on that. And, you know, you were saying that the quantum, the history of quantum theory is, you know, it's still developing. But we've now had sort of 80 years of getting used to this idea. Do you think that we're human, that, that, that the scientists who study this, like you now, are still held back by this intuition that there has to be a thing that pushes on something else you know these sort of real world mechanism things or do you think that once you've gone through all the degrees and you've spent years researching it you're finally free of having to be held back by those things i think i think it's a mixture of those things in fact i think we scientists should really get back to a little bit of that because the what quantum what an orthodox view of quantum mechanics in which there is this object the quantum state which seems to be central to the to the um, to the orthodox view what that seems to demand of people is that all you ever ask about is, are predictions about the results of your experiments so you don't in fact ask about the mechanism so you have a box and your quantum system is in the box and you don't ask about what you don't ask the theory for a picture of what's going on inside the box. You just say, if I do this operation on the box, then I want my theory to give me to predict the results of 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 my operation. What will I observe? I I don't ask about what's going on inside the box if when I'm not experimenting on it or not watching it. So I'm not asking for the, the you know the mechanisms. I'm not asking for a picture of what's what's going on, what's causing what. I'm I'm just asking for it to tell me what I will see if I do my experiments. And I think that's regressive. I mean that that is a, a sort of giving up of on the you know the the purpose of science, which is to understand. I want to understand what's going on in the box, not just what will happen outside the box if I twiddle this knob. What what readout will it give me on the on the screen if I you know if I set it up like this? I don't want that. That's not particularly interesting. I want to know what's going on inside the box. And I think this orthodox perspective on quantum mechanics has driven people into a corner where they they they're now saying, well, we don't need to know what's going on inside the box. So long as we get the right results for our prediction predictions for our experiments, we don't need to have a picture. Um, so yeah, so. I think getting back a little bit to to asking what for a, uh, an understanding of the of a quantum system, a, an actual picture of, of of quantum reality, I think would actually advance us more. Right, I think we're going to accept that we're not going to get through. We're not going to get through all the questions today. Uh, but I see how many we can get in the last ten minutes. Uh, I knew this was going to be an interesting one. This is um, this is from Matthew Cobb. I think it's that Matthew Cobb at Manchester University, um, and uh, he would like to know what is spin. Is it a metaphor, or do electrons really rotate? Um, Phil, 
that's when, when people hear again someone like me when you hear spin of course the picture theory you're getting in your head is probably very different to the actual reality of yeah, yeah. reality. Um, it well it <laughs> it is and it isn't um so here is when we talk about quantum spin here is why we talk about uh it as spin because when everyday objects like a ball spin they have something called angular momentum okay and Quantum spin is a property that gives quantum particles angular momentum. So it looks as though it's the same kind of thing. Um, however, it doesn't behave um, in quite the same ways as classical spin does. Um, looked at one way, it almost looks as though um, a, a quantum object, in order to spin, uh, to come back to where it originally was, it has to kind of go through two revolutions rather than one, which doesn't quite, you, you can't really develop an intuitive picture of what's going on there. But, you know, when we do things like that, it's because we are trying to force a kind of classical picture onto this quantum thing. So, you know, it's that that's why it has this label. Uh, that's why it's called spin, because it looked like everyday classical spin, but it's not the same as that. Um, and it's one of those quantum properties. And there are others that fundamental particles have um, that we just have to say, um, you know, there is no classical analog to this. Um, it, 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 there's one that's quite close to it for in this case, in the case of spin, for the reasons I've said. But there are other properties that quantum particles, certainly subatomic particles, particles that make up the nucleus, for example, have that we just have to kind of use as labels because there's no, you know, things like color. Um, it's not it's nothing to do with color in any normal sense. This is just a label that refers to a quantum property that just has no classical analog. So, I, I, you know, I, I think that's the best I can do for, for spin to say there are reasons why we think of it a bit like a spinning thing, but it wouldn't be correct. Or at least we have no reason to think of it as, for example, an, a little electron spinning around. As far as we know, an electron is just a, a point. So I don't even know what it would mean for it to be spinning. Um, um, so, yeah, it's it's one of those situations where we just have to live with the fact that the quantum world has these properties of particles that don't have uh, classical pictures to, to tell us what's going on. Right. The uh, thank heavens we're going. To uh, thank heavens we're going to back to something simple next week, like human consciousness. Uh, we'll get through so much then. This is um, this is from Kay. This was actually a question from last week. Uh, I'll ask you this, Faye. Um, Kay would like to know how does speed affect gravity, or does it not? What I mean is, as an example, why can a motorbike lean over past fifty degrees and not fall over when it's going very fast, but fall over again when it's at the same angle going slowly? And the same with the spinning top. So that's a you know gravity. Where does that fit into that picture uh, case? Oh, so those are new, we can work in a Newtonian framework to answer those questions. Because actually, if you take a relativistic perspective, then the notion of speed becomes relative. So you can only talk, speed itself is not meaningful, but you can have to talk about relative speed. Okay, so for the motorcycle, it doesn't affect gravity. What it's affecting is um, the uh, the friction, the frictional force between the the um, the tires and the and the ground. So, in order to let's see, in order to not fall over, there has to be um, enough. Let's see. <laughs> 
I'm so glad this is you, Faye. And <laughs> <laughs> I find it sometimes helpful example of a velodrome you know where you've got those banked sides mm. it's a bit more obvious where the forces are coming from I don't want to interrupt you Faye no no that's, that's right. right so that's right so when you're going around good 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 when you're going when you're going when you're turning a corner or going around a velodrome going around a curve in a velodrome there needs to be a force on you that that is pushing you towards the center that's people call that the centripetal force so you're actually, when you're going around in a circle, you're actually accelerating. Even if you're going at a constant speed, you're accelerating. And the direction of your acceleration is towards the center of the circle. So that, it, so that force is higher the faster, you, the faster you're going. So you can go around in that circle if you're going fast enough because that acceleration will be fast enough to, to, um, to, uh, to push you towards the center of the circle. But if you're going too slowly, then there isn't, en there isn't enough force on you to, um, to allow you to go around the circle. Can I just add that bicycle mechanics um, were still being debated, some of these basic questions, certainly when I was an editor at Nature, and as far as I know, it's still being debated now by, uh, by, by physicists. So it's... Um, Why is riding a bicycle a stable... Exactly. So yeah. So yeah. so this is an extreme, you know, much harder problem than than you might think. Nevertheless, people can ride bicycles. Exactly. Well, highly recommended. Well, highly recommended. Talking with David Eagleman the other day in in his latest book, uh, he talks about Destin Sandlin's fantastic bicycle, or, or at least the bike that he he promoted, which is the bike that uh, if you turn the handlebars right, the wheel goes left. And I've had a go on it, and it's really fascinating. And if you if you look, I, I forget what the actual YouTube channel's called, but look up Destin Sandlin and look up a uh, reverse bicycle, and you will see something very fascinating. It's on an entirely. It's, it's on a, a somewhat different issue, but nevertheless, while we're going through the bicycle uh, portion of the show. Also, uh, Kay, please take the corners safely, though. Do not, just because you're in an experimental frame of mind in terms of the nature of, of, of physics, if you're in a built-up area, please don't go at 50 miles an hour. There we go. We've covered our legal asses there. Um, this is from Joe N. Joe N would like to know, uh, I always see the double slit experiment used as a way to explain quantum physics. My small issue is that I don't understand the double slit experiment. Now, this, again, is something where I would say you when you first hear this and when you second hear it and when you third hear it and when you keep hearing it we are we we feel there was a world we knew and now there is a world that it, that is changed um Faye would you like to take that first of all so that saying you don't understand it means that you have understood it so if you hear about the double slit experiment and you say yeah what's the problem then you clearly haven't <laughs> you haven't understood the description of, of what the results are. So the fact that you don't understand it means that you haven't. I mean, you've under understood the setup and you've understood the the description of the results, which are quite extraordinary. So what happens is that when you have one slit open, then the particle has only one way to go, passed through the slit, which is in this metal screen, for example, and it lands. Um, and make some scintillation on a, a, a backstop. So, so should we just, just so people have got a clear picture, yeah. so if, if you imagine we could use 
we'll use the normal thing like which is the, you draw yeah. a diagram helen as well which is you know you imagine a kind of a, a, a gun that fires out a particle in the middle of this box if we imagine it as a shoe box box there there, there is uh, a, a a single slit on this occasion and at the end is a screen which will then detect what has happened if so just to give that just some yeah, sense good. of good, good, good. where are we can you see where are we go yeah mm. if it's that way around that way around yeah so the particle if there's one slit over oh, slit once then the particle can make it through and get to the get to the backstop right and it makes a little flash so if it's an electron and it's a sort of cathode ray tube then it makes a little scintillation little flash and over time with this one slit open you can make a nice pattern of the build up of all these of all these scintillations on the screen and it's all uniform so there'll be that there'll be a sort of uniform spread of the part of where the particles hit the screen okay and then you can do that for the second cover the first one let them go through the second slit and again there'll be a nice uniform spread of these scintillations on the backstop yeah so cover right again a nice uniform pattern of of scintillations on that backstop okay then what you do is you let them yeah good open both slits now the pattern becomes really weird it becomes striped there are it, there'll be stripes so there'll be patterns of places where that yet yeah, where the particle can land and in between there will be gaps where it can't land now all those places all those so-called dark bands are places where the particle could get to if one slit was open but with two slits open it can now no longer go there it could go there with one slit open but with two it can't go there so that's yeah, that's fall off your chair kind of weirdness. So the so particle, the what the particle does depends on what possibilities it has open to it. And there's a nice joke about that. Okay, so whether you find this funny or not, <laughs> it's probably tell you something about yourself. Okay, so this is the, the parable of the quantum pie eater. So the quantum pie eater goes into the pie shop and says to the pie shop owner, oh, what pies do you have today? And the pie shop owner says, oh, I've got apple and blueberry. And the pie eater says, oh, I'll, have, I'll take the apple pie, please. And then the pie shop owner says, oh, wait, actually, actually, I forgot. There's also cherry pie. And the pie eater says, oh, in that case, I'll take blueberry. <laughs> Now the way to set the way to set that. You see, I reckon. I don't know. I find that funny, but. But when you're doing a gig, you see, this is what we can do very psychological tests on this with your setup. Because I think if you'd set that up by saying, now, um, whether you get this joke or not and how funny you find it depends on your level of understanding. Now, I reckon if you say that in a lecture hall, a number of people who haven't got it at all will still go, <laughs> I really, I don't. But I really, I better. So the uh, we'll, we'll, the psychology, we'll deal with that next week on The Bread. We've got one more question that we're going to deal with. I'll just quickly thank you again to uh, everyone who's watched and everyone who's supporting us via Patreon. Uh, or if you are able to put any money in the tip jar that's fantastic and a reminder that the andrean uh um conversation with brian cox now is now up on uh, the cosmic shambles youtube channel and if you can subscribe to that that is fantastic and helen is also uh she's appearing in the uh this week's maths uh with uh matt parker as well uh and also mention of course uh um phil's latest book 
there are four more on the way, by the way. Uh, the latest book, How to Grow a Human, which is why the world will eventually be populated by this kind of incredible number of, of Philip Bulls, uh, which will then lead to some kind of strange panspermia across the entire galaxy, and it will all be Philip Ball creatures. Um, and uh, you can't get Facebook. She hasn't written it yet, have you? Are you going to write a book, Faye? I hope you do. Because I love your lectures. Your lectures, I think... So Facebook will be available, if not in this universe, in another universe, she, she has written one. See, I haven't understood anything Phil said at all. Um, the, uh, so the final question, I'm going to really um, balls this up. This is from Steve Thompson, uh, who is a, a wonderful musician, amongst other things. And he goes, here's a long form one. Uh, and uh, it is said, citation needed, that this paragraph is the most beautiful ever written about physics. The question is why, and for us mortals, what does it say? in english if one wants to summarize our knowledge in the briefest possible terms so here right i'm not even gonna be able to read all this because it involves terminology and i don't do terminology right so if one wants to summarize our knowledge of physics in the briefest possible terms there are three really fundamental observations one space-time is a pseudo remian manifold m endowed with a metric tensor and governed by geometrical laws two over m is a vector bundle x with a non-abelian gouge gauge group g three fermions a section right anyway so you get some idea right first of all what is that who recognized it uh, i recognize it because steve's answer him then <laughs> great okay that's good steve you merely did that to torture me you merely did that uh, to torture me um that we we didn't as i said we did we didn't cover um everything there were lots of wonderful questions including ones which were just about the the definition of of, of indeed what what quantum physics is um and as i mentioned before as well i really do highly we did a wonderful event with uh with philip and alan moore which i think is it is it fair to say philip that you were surprised that not merely had alan in the space of a couple of days read the entirety of your book understood your book and then beyond that i think also understood the ramifications of the book it was quite and it, i mean because i just looked at your face at one point with you kind of going whoa yeah. in 48 hours this man's done. i was touched of course that he read it i was flabbergasted that he understood it <laughs> he was starting to explain it better than i could so yeah you, yeah you need you need alan to talk about this stuff he really, it is such. He a, really, it is such an a, a, an interesting. What are, so so Phil? I've mentioned you've you've got a few more. When's the next book coming out? The the latest one is only has only come out quite recently, hasn't it? How to grow a human. It came out yes last year. The next one I have out is actually it's, book. it's, it's about modern myths and it's looking at the stories that we have told in modern times that have I I think acquired genuine mythical status and you know they're they're kind of the, probably the obvious ones once you start to think about it. Frankenstein. Jekyll and Hyde, Robinson Crusoe, um, Sherlock Holmes. And it's looking at what we mean by a modern myth and why those stories have become mythical. I need to talk to Alan about that as well, clearly. In fact, Alan is in the book, um, naturally. Um, yeah, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Which is so much fun. Please, anyone watching this, if you've avoided seeing the film so far, continue with that habit. Continue with that habit. It is one of the most remarkable maulings of something which which, which Kevin O'Neill and, and Alan Moore created, something so funny and beautiful and adventurous. And uh, the film is none of those things. Um, Helen, what are you up to? To be honest, I'm, I've got a boring answer because I'm a university academic. So, of course, I'm shifting all our teaching online. That's all I've done for four months. Um, I'm supposed to be writing a book about the ocean, but I ha it has been neglected during all of this. Also, because I can't go to the ocean, which is very frustrating. So I'm uh, I'm sort of um, 
I have no particularly exciting projects to report. I'm sorry. And and Faye, are you? I and, presume and Faye, are you? I presume you also, in terms of an imperial, are, are you um, having to record all your lectures for, for for next year? Is that is that currently with the thinking of how that's going to happen? To move to a mixed hybrid system, like I don't, it hasn't been set completely whether ev- all of our um, lectures are going to be online but it looks likely that most of them are but there'll still be labs so we'll have uh, there'll still be in-person laboratory um, laboratory experiments and yeah I really recommend actually if you get a chance watch some of um, Anil's uh, stuff that he's done TED Talks and TEDx Talks um, because if you're looking for you know what you he's there's so many interesting ideas in in those and of course Ginny of course explored a lot of those ideas in her books well but if you if you uh, Anil's um, TED talk the main TED talk in particular I think is is uh, is will set you off on in many different areas so if you've got any questions about uh, the human mind consciousness our experience of the world our subjective experience the nature of death etc etc um then uh send them to us and we'll ask them at next week's sunday q a and uh, thank you very much to trent as usual who uh produces this show every week keep an eye out on the cosmic shambles channel as i said we've got things new things every single week sometimes three four five or six different things every week thank you again to everyone for joining us and uh see you next sunday thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.